to you, our God, set apart from the world unto your kingdom. Thank you for the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, which is reckoned to your people, to all who call upon his saving name. And we pray, Father, that in this hour, that people would call upon that name. Send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of redemption, the spirit of regeneration, and call them, call men and women and boys and girls by your power, call them to believe on the Lord Jesus and to be saved. Many of us do believe. We love you, Father. You are God. We're so grateful that you've called us, unworthy though we are, that you've called us into your kingdom. And now we pray that your word will make deep impressions upon our souls, that we'll learn more of what it means to love and serve a holy God. For we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. The title of today's sermon is The Holiness of God. Here's what it's about. Here's where we're going. Well, we're going to the holiness of God. But I'm hoping I have a surprise for you. So, yeah, uh uh-oh. So, (laughs) normally, (laughs) normally, when we think about the holiness of God, we probably all think about something. We go straight there in our thoughts. What do we think about when we think about the holiness of God? God is holy, and that means he is without sin, right? That's probably where we all go. The holiness of God means the sinlessness of God, and it does. And that's very important and very life-changing because he says, be ye holy because I am holy or as I am holy. So we, we want to be like the God who loved us and saved us. We want to be holy. We want to be set apart from sin. But In actuality, the holiness of God is a much larger topic than that. That is one part of God's holiness. There's a lot more about God's holiness that I hope to maybe surprise at least some of you with. God's holiness might be more than what you think. All right, we read Isaiah 6. That was 700 B.C. Let's travel down through time and stop at the the 1800s in London. Through the 1800s, up until he died on January 31, 1891, 1892, who was the greatest preacher in London? Who's the one we still remember most? Who's the one we talk about? His name was Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When he was a relatively young man in 1855, he preached these words on January 7. The proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1855, London. Let's stay in London, but leave 800s and travel back to 1646. 
It was in London in 1646 that that great document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, was penned. Has there ever been one that can rival that in the history of the the church of Jesus Christ? Yes, there is. It came out a few years later by the Baptists. (laughs) The London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is basically the Westminster Confession with a lot more water. But those two documents, choose the one you will, choose the one with more water, were penned in the 1800s. The Westminster Confession first in 1646. And the world has been enriched by that confession. Let me read you chapter 2, paragraph 1, and I'll put it up so you're not stuck with just listening. You can use the eye gate and the ear gate at the same time. Hopefully more goes in that way. Westminster Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 1. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's one paragraph out of a very long confession of faith. Who even writes like that anymore? And hopefully there are people left upon the earth who will read things like that anymore because that's rich. I'm not saying you need to do this, but I'm saying it would help you. If you just read that, look it up. Look up the Baptist version. They're identical at this point, I think. And every morning before you go out to do what you're going to do, just read that and meditate on it for a little bit. It might be a different day. You might respond to things in the day differently. You might react to what happens in the day differently. Start your day with, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfect. Just start there and think on that for a bit and pray over that for a bit and do the whole paragraph and then go out and do your day. It's pretty amazing. But the people who wrote it, the pastors and theologians who gathered at Westminster Abbey for many months and wrote wrote the whole confession, they realized that this might be a little bit much for some people. So they wrote a Cliff Notes version. For for, for all who did not crush the SATs, they wrote us a version. It's called the Shorter Catechism. The Shorter. It's the Shorter Catechism. And these are their words. They said it was to be, quote, a directory for catechizing such as are of weaker capacity. So if you feel that you're of weaker capacity, 
Here's the version for you. Fourth question in the shorter catechism. Question, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Uh, Those are not isolated parts, by the way. Let me just explain that a little bit to you. So God is a spirit, doesn't have a body. God the Son now has a body and will eternally. He, He is, as a spirit, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in the following things. So in his being, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his wisdom, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In his power, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. You get the idea. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in each of those things. But it's more interconnected and intertwined than that. Because you can take it like this, and this works. Take God's justice. See God's justice on the screen above me or below me if you're online. God's justice is in his being, he is just. In his wisdom, he is just. In his power, he is just. In his holiness, he is just. In his goodness, he is just. In his truth, he is just. You can take any one of these and draw lines in all directions to all the others. He's all of those at once because he is immense and single. He is one. He does not have parts. So these are all cascading in upon one another. They're all related to one another. They're not isolated parts of God. He is infinite wise, just, powerful, holy, unchangeable. But now back to the holiness of God, because that's, you see, it's one of those things. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. So what is the holiness of God? Let's start with a couple words. Want to do some Hebrew and some Greek? Thank you. Thank you. That's good. That's getting better. So here's a Hebrew word. It's kadosh. Uh, transliterated it into English for you. By the way, when you're reading the Hebrew one, you start on the right and you read leftward. So that's kind of cool. All you left-handers will appreciate that. You could do that without smudging. You should learn Hebrew, write all your grocery lists in Hebrew. But anyway, it's kadosh. And the Greek noun, hagias, hagias, would be its counterpart in the one in the Old and one in the New Testament. And the basic idea, the central idea of kadosh and of hagias is not separate from sin. That's a part of it. But the basic idea is one of separation. So what's it, what it's really saying is God is separate. Well, from what? Everything. From you, from all creation. He is He is completely unique, is the idea. There's only one like him. There's no other. Uh, Another good word for this is it's speaking about God's transcendence. He is so far above, so high, so over everything else. There's none like him. No, none at all. And this is what we mean. This is the bigger thing that we should mean when we think of God as holy, when we say that God is holy. What we're really saying is he is separate. Yes, one part of that is separate from sin. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. There is, God is light and there is no darkness in him, no none at all. He's separate from sin, but that's one part of his set-apartness. That's one part of his transcendence. He is actually transcended in all those ways on the list that we, that we read together. So God is holy separate from sin, but God is also holy, 
transcendent, unique, different, other. Let's look at Isaiah again. Here's something that brings it out. Isaiah, and starting in verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here's what's going on in the presence of God. Right now in the presence of God, always in the presence of God. When Isaiah saw it in the presence of God, there are these exalted beings, these seraphim, and they cry, holy, 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 three times for obvious emphasis. It's like if you saw somebody who's just a guy and he's huge, and you said, he's huge, huge, huge. You'd mean, this is not your average huge guy. This is really huge. That's what they're saying about the holiness of God. He is so set apart, set apart, set apart, so other, so transcendent, so unique, so one of a kind, so in his own category, so there's no other like him. He is holy, holy, holy. And that's what they're emphasizing. And we know this because what do we know about these seraphim? They are themselves what? Holy. They're holy in terms of having no sin. They're not transcendent like God, but they're holy in terms of having no sin. They have been locked by God's grace since he created them into righteousness. They never violate their conscience. They never break God's law. They never succumb to temptation. They are absolutely holy spirit beings locked by God's grace in holiness for all eternity future. So when they say, holy, 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 they themselves are holy, and the part about God that's amazing them most is not, therefore, that he has no sin. They have no sin. So what are they really getting at when they cry, holy, holy, holy? Certainly it includes that, but it's bigger than that. It's more encompassing than that. And what they're really amazed at is how high above them, exalted seraphim, holy beings, how high above them he is. How different, how other, how, how transcendent, how amazing. The word transcendence is a good one. Let's put it up there. To transcend or transcendence. Came out as a word and a half. All right, came out good on this screen. That, I have a little screen back there so I can see what you see. It came out funny back there. Transcendence means it's above, it's over, it's higher than. If we thought of it philosophically, it almost means it's unfathomable. God is so other, he's so high above, he's so different. It's unfathomable. Like when we get our most impassioned worship moment and lights go on, the lights are about that big and they're dim and they're there for a few seconds and they go out again. We're like nibbling at the edges of God's greatness and amazingness and transcendence. Yes, he is ethically pure, but he is also in his being he is ontologically transcendent. 
So this is what these creatures are saying, I think, and others think, primarily when they say holy, 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 what they mean is his glorious and unfathomable transcendence. And my brothers and sisters, why am I preaching on this today? Because if we could get glimpses of that, if we could get more than glimpses of that, if you could get a daily dose of that, if you could live in the light of the glory of God's transcendence day after day after day, it would change your life. It would change the way you see things and do things and respond to things. It would change if you could live in the presence of God, transcendent God. It's important enough that we get this that I'm going to throw in a few other scriptures and I'll put them up for you. Exodus 15, 11. Here's God's transcendence. Here's God's holiness. Who is like you, O Lord? <laughs> among the, even among the gods, the great ones, the gods of the great people of the earth. They're the greatest people on the planet. But they're not like you. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Dear friends and brothers and sisters, there is this great being who has always been. It pleased him to create everything out of nothing to create a first couple, Adam and Eve, to breathe into them the, the breath of life, to pass that down unto us. And you are alive today because of this great being, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. First Samuel 2.2, there is none holy, set apart, other, different, unique in his own category. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Amen? Got your feet planted on the rock? There's no other rock like, like him. And there's no other besides him. There's no other like him. Think about the most amazing thing you can think about, the most amazing thing you've ever seen, the most amazing person you know, the most, the most amazing song you've ever heard, the greatest concert you ever went to. They're all nothing. The most wonderful sunset, nothing compared to him. Hosea 11.9, I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. Isaiah 57.15a, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He inhabits Eternity, like my little pea brain can't even begin to grasp, what does that really mean? How do I wrap my brain around that? And he's high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His very name is holy, set apart, transcendent, unique, different, holy. So other passages help us to understand what is it that makes God's, God holy? Well, yes, it is his complete absence of what of breaking his own laws which emanate of necessity from his soul from his being it's god's complete absence of sin but it's also in a greater way it's his transcendence he's so big if we could just see how big if we could just grasp how big how amazing how incredible 
he is. And this is what I think it meant to these seraphim. This is what's amazing to them when they cry, holy, holy, holy. I'll give you a little peek ahead in the service. The last song today. Who wants to guess what the song would be? Who's doing that? That's back there at the... Way to go, man. We didn't plan that. Just want you to know. That was spontaneous. That's going to be the last song. When we sing that song, don't just think this means he's sinless, sinless, sinless. No, no, no. He is transcendent, transcendent, transcendent. He is above. He is amazing, amazing, amazing. He is this being that we can barely even begin to fathom. Let's look at the shorter catechism again, the one for non-crushers of the SAT. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is holy in his being. He is holy in his wisdom. He is holy in his power. It's holy power. Anytime he exercises power, it's in a holy way. It's a set-apart way. No one else exercises power like that. No one else has a being like that. No one else has wisdom like that. No one else has justice like that. No one else has goodness like that. No one else has truth like that. His, his goodness and truth and all those other things are set apart from those of anyone else. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in them. I just want to grasp that more. I want to grasp it more deeply. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, his name is Gerhardus Voss. I think when you have a name like Gerhardus Voss, you have to do something great. Whenever, whenever Debbie and I hear an interesting name, I always ask her, would you have married me if I had had that name? I do. I ask her that a lot. I think I asked her that yesterday. We were sitting at a stoplight. The guy in the car was hearing us. But anyway, um, would you have married me if I had the name Gerhardus Voss? But he was a great theologian. So dense, so compact is, is everything he writes that I can read like a paragraph, and then I have to stop and rest, blink for a while, try and figure out what he was talking about. But I'm going to give you a paragraph from Gerhardus Voss. You all ready for Gerhardus Voss? (laughs) Yeah, he wrote about this. Here it is. God's holiness is not really an attribute to be coordinated with the other attributes in the divine nature. God's holiness is something co-extensive with and applicable to everything that can be said of God. He is holy in everything that characterizes him. That means different. And everything that reveals him, he's holy in that. He's holy in his goodness and grace, no less than in his righteousness and wrath. Gerhardus Voss. Slide man, give us the title slide, please. So what are we seeing? We've, we've talked about the holiness of God. I assumed you would all think quickly and immediately uh, that that means God is sinless, and he is, and that's a very important part of his holiness. And when the Bible says you're to be holy because he's holy, that's mainly what it's talking about. You be sinless because he's sinless. 
When that temptation comes, you remember, wait a minute, I'm serving a holy God. Wait a minute, I'm here in the presence of a holy God. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm accountable to a holy God. And by that you mean he's sinless. So I want to be sinless in his sight. That helps you with following Christ. That helps you with being holy. That helps you with being set apart. That helps you with being sanctified. So we've seen that. that. That is part of God's holiness. But we've also seen that it's really much bigger than that. And this is the main thing we've been after today. It's that he is such an amazingly transcendent other being. Okay then. So what will this do for us? Number one, Here's what it should do. It should size us down, way down. It should size us down, just like when if, if and when you lost 30 pounds. And so you take your suit to the tailor and say, uh, size it down, please. I lost 30 pounds. So he's got to, you know, take it in the back, now the pockets are kissing, and take it in up here, now the shoulders are too big, and he can't do much about that, and so on and so forth. I've had suits sized up, never down. I don't know what that is. But like you have to size down a suit, we need to be sized down. Because we always, 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 always get too big for our spiritual britches. The current view in our land, the current view, probably the predominant view of us, is that we are autonomous beings. We're it. We're on our own. We are gods. We get to fashion morality the way we want it to be. We get to fashion our very being the way we want it to be. We get to fashion sexuality the way we want it to be. We get to fashion gender the way we want We get to make ourselves in our own mental image. We are now the gods. This isn't new, however. Way back in the 1500s, the great reformer Martin Luther said to his opponent once, a great scholar named Erasmus, he said to him, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. You think of him as being like us. You need bigger thoughts of God. You need loftier thoughts of God. In Florence, I believe it's in the Uffizi Gallery, but don't quote me. In Florence, how many of you have been to Florence? Yeah, it's all right, wasn't it? Uh huh. I think it's in the Uffizi. It's Michelangelo's 17 foot tall David. Have you seen David? Seven feet, 17 feet tall, and he's up on this big pedestal, so he's way up there, this huge man. But you know what? It's not David. It's not David. He named it David. You had to name it a biblical name to get your art to go somewhere in those days, but it's not David. You know how we know that? Who should I look at when I say this? Because he's not circumcised. He named him David because you had to with the work of art, but that is no David. That is Renaissance man. We've crawled out of the darkness of the Middle Ages, and we've become autonomous, and we're big, and we're huge, and we're important, and we're not sized down by the holiness of God. I told you a few weeks ago, I love the, the film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I did just buy the book. I did just read it because I've been on vacation, and I like to read on vacation, and I read it, and it was amazing, but it's amazing and demonic, amazing and evil. 
because the message of the book is we are autonomous, but there are beings out there. They're godlike, isn't that something? They're godlike beings out there who are tampering with our development, and they're bringing us to a greater stage, stage, stage of evolution. And by the end of the book, the protagonist, Dave, spoiler alert, he becomes this godlike being. It gave me the creeps. It gave me these goosebumps like, ooh, this is horrible. It's like us becoming God. You know what it reminds me of? Isaiah 14, the devil. I will, his famous, his infamous five I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be like God. There aren't many new things in life, right? It's the same old stuff. It's back in the garden, has God really said, and it's in Isaiah 14, I'll be God. And what we have today is people being God. What's going on in our culture? It's people being God. It's casting God off and making ourselves God and saying we can be whatever we want to be. And as we're doing it, we're big. We're Renaissance man. We're beyond, we're Enlightenment man. We're beyond the Enlightenment even. I'm currently reading a book I'm really loving by Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. On page 192, he deals with Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's autobiography, titled in English, Behold the Man, it's about himself. Behold me, the man. And in the book, he says, Nietzsche says, I know my fate. One day my name will be associated with the memory of something tremendous. I am no man. I am dynamite. Try that one on Debbie. She'll go. (laughs) Not only reminds me of Satan, reminds me of Toad. Anybody read Wind in the Willows? Kenneth Graham? Anybody been to Disney and done Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? comes from that book. And toad is that he's a toad, right? This is a toad. Like how beautiful is a toad? How amazing, how exalted, how transcendent is a toad? But he thinks he's the greatest creature on the planet. And he, he writes a song and sings it to himself about himself. It starts off with, uh, the clever man in Oxford knows all that there is to be known, but there's none of them knows nearly one half as much as intelligent Mr. Toad. And then there's a chorus, toad, toad, the amazing Mr. Toad. That's what we're doing in our day. We are toad. And we think we're something big. And we think we can make ourselves in our own mental image. And we're recreating and refashioning ourselves into whatever mold we want to. And the only evil is if you tell us we shouldn't. That's evil. If you try to limit my freedom to be whatever I want to be, you're the new evil. But this will size us down. This will size us down. I do not like reading the Bible from an app. I feel a little guilty even doing it. But I don't have a paper Bible up here with me right now, and I want to read to you from Job 38. Oops, where'd it go? There it is, Job 38. You know the story of Job. Job is being a little too big for his britches and questioning God. God, why do you allow this to happen to me? This can't be right. I'm not the sinner that they say I am. How come you let this happen? And by the end of the book, it's like God's had enough. And he says, all right, you just be quiet and listen, and I'll talk. I'll talk for a while. And he says, 
and it goes on and on and on. I'll read you a little bit of it. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I'd like God to say that to Nietzsche. Well, he probably has. Where were you? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know God's mocking people. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I'll go down to verse 12. Have you commanded the morning, like be morning? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea, verse 16, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse? And he just goes on and on and on and on. And if I, be, or if I were Job, I'd be there like getting smaller and smaller, looking for the hole to jump into. Actually, no, Lord, I'm none of those. Like God cuts them down to size. This is what we need. And the, the doctrine of God's holiness his transcendence, his amazing otherness is just made to cut us down to size. Here's another thing it does for us. It sizes God up. Well, it actually, you can't size him up. You can't change his size. What I mean by that is it enlarges our views of God. Another thing about Nietzsche, page 54 in Truman's book, Nietzsche said, this is taken out of his writings, what has been known as God, like in human history in the past, what has been known of God, we find to be pitiable, absurd, harmful. That's the view today. A crime against life. Like his morals are a crime against life. Especially sexual morals in our day. They are pitiable, absurd, harmful, a crime against life. Nietzsche goes on to say, we deny God as God. He has appeared in the presence of the Holy One. He might still be saying such things in hell. The anti-heroes in Truman's book are Nietzsche, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud, and all three of them have ginormous shadows that are cast over our land and are producing what we're seeing right now. You go back to those three. Read Carl Truman's book. It's not easy reading. It's about like Gerhardus Voss. But if we, we want to size God up, that is, we want to enlarge our views of God, if we can just spend some part of some of our days consciously thinking on, pondering, praying over, meditating on, recognizing, feeling the weight of the doctrine of God, in our devotional time, in our prayer time, walking around, taking a walk, walk in wonder, me smaller, God bigger. This is what that's supposed to do. So you're supposed to leave this place today smaller than when you came in. Smaller. Maybe we should do this. You ever been to the Ephrata Cloister? Your mama don't let you out much, huh? So north of Lancaster, a little town called Ephrata, there's this cloister there. It was a religious, what would you call it? I don't know. It was a commune. You went there and lived there. You, you had to vow 
celibacy to get in, so it lasted one generation. They got no new converts. It was gone. You slept on a hard bed, uh, like a, a plank, with a block of wood for your pillow. You were only allowed to sleep, I think, four hours. Then they got you up, and you had to go to chapel and do prayers and sing and all that stuff. Then you can go sleep some more, then hard labor all day, etc. But But here's the thing that I want to mention about the cloister. All of the doorways are like this tall. And I, I thought, boy, people really were little then, weren't they? And they said, no, 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 they weren't that little. They intentionally made them tall, so you have to bow and be humbled when you go through a door. Maybe we should do that back here in the back end of Cornerstone. So when we leave church, we bow. Well, maybe not physically, but in heart today, I hope you will leave church and bow, and God will be bigger and you will be smaller. Some of you aren't Christians. You need to know. Good timing, Amy. Thanks. You need to know this transcendent, amazing being who created everything. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Something came. Then there's somebody. And you need to know this amazing being who is so transcendent, it will change you. It will change your soul. It will change your life. And you get to live in his presence and in his company and in fellowship with him. He's your God and you're his people. All you need to do is humble yourself in the sight of God. Call upon the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will give you everlasting life and you'll know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we pray for people with us in the room and people with us elsewhere who who are strangers to the saving grace your saving grace as found in the Lord Jesus. Father, in your power, please draw them to yourself. The the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. We pray that the Spirit would convict people in this room of sin and righteousness and judgment and thus their need for Christ. Father, turn people to the Lord Jesus that they may know you whom to know is life everlasting. Many of our boys and girls are downstairs right now. Father, it is our prayer to you that you would put it in their souls to believe in the Lord Jesus and to be saved. So empower the teachers, the instructors who are down there with them. Empower your word as it goes into their hearts. Give them hearts of good soil. The seed goes in deep and springs up to everlasting life. Thank you for the table of communion as we come to it. Warm our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. We have a number of pastors at Cornerstone and lots of other people along with them who would be happy to be in your life and help you. There's a number on the screen right now. It's appearing anyway. There it is. You can just text the word pastors to that number. We'd love to receive that from you.
we'll get back to you. We'll get in touch with you, and we can talk about the thing that's on your heart, especially if, if you need help to come and know the Lord Jesus. If you need help wrestling with something in your life that's keeping you back from holiness, if you need to know more about this holy God, text us. Make it easy for you. Just grab your phone, text pastors to that number. We'll be in touch. Pastor Stan, lead us in communion, please. Thank you, Steve, for that, as I said last service, timely reminder of God's holiness. Our God is holy. Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper for his people. So if you are a true child of God, we welcome you to join us at the table of the Lord. And today I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul writes, Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his life in order that we would be set free from sin. And all our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven because of Christ. Today, I want us to stop and think, as Pastor Steve has exhorted us about the holiness of God, to reflect for about 30 seconds on that holiness and what impact it has upon our lives. And then I will lead us in prayer, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper. So let's bow. thank you, Lord, that you are holy, and it was in your perfect holiness that the plan of redemption was put into place, that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was set like a flint towards Jerusalem, and his broken body suffered at the cross for us, and his blood was spilt so that we could be forgiven. Lord, we bow before you and give thanks as we remember what Christ has done for us. We bless you and we thank you in his name. Amen. On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he told his disciples that this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same manner he said that the wine represents my blood which is shed on your behalf for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me we thank God for Christ right amen well let's stand we have one last song to sing let's lift our voices and praise to him all right you know what song it is song called Holy, holy, holy. And I'm uh, just going to give you a heads up. In between the verses are bi- 
and between the song verses are Bible verses. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to say them or sing them. Um, they're just for your reflection. And may, man, may the Lord turn those lights on for us. And may those lights go on across the world to behold His holiness, His beauty.